Welcome, citizens of the globe, to the Front End Heroes podcast, where we discuss all things villainous and heroic about the front end of software development. My name is Evan Payne. I'm a senior front end developer at Actimo, and with me, as always, is my co host, Scott Francis, a senior front end engineer at Porsche. How are you doing, Scott? Yeah, super well, thanks. Um, really glad to be here as, as ever uh, for another great guest. Um, like, had some, uh, had a really great week actually. Like, uh, our colleagues over from Germany, so spent a lot of time showing them uh, around the city as well as like hearing about new products for, for the company and everything. It's been like a super, super nice work, uh, week. So, um, and this is a great way to end the, end the week as well. How about you? Very nice. Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, nearly time to finally go home from our ages long vacation. And the big news from my side is that my uh, daughter, my oldest daughter's 13 year, uh, 13th birthday was uh, recently. So that was nice. a milestone to be sure. <laughs> um, yeah, she's a teenager now. Oh, man. Yeah, she really was before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they get there. I honestly feel like for a father, like uh, the a daughter turning into a teenager has got to be like the most challenging time. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's okay. It's it's the you know we had to get her makeup and teach her how to use it, and you know she really needed her own phone now and that sort of stuff. It's good. It's it's nice to be growing uh, with that. Yeah. Cool. Right. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by NetCentric, an award-winning Adobe Global Alliance partner and consultancy headquartered in Switzerland with offices all over Europe as well as Pune, India. Uh, they're currently hiring for a number of roles, so if you're looking, check them out. We are ever so glad to have their support with this show. Uh, today's guest um, is a developer, designer, and data translator, author of the Fullstack D3 and data visualization course and book, and also staff engineer at GitHub Next. So, Amelia Wattenberger, thanks for joining us. And can you introduce yourself and let us know maybe a bit about how you got into the tech scene to begin with? Yeah, yeah, that was a great intro. Thanks. Um, happy to be here. Um, yeah, that. There are short, medium, and long versions of this story. I'm going to go with, I think, medium. <laughs> um, all, right. all right. So my parents are actually both programmers. We're starting right at the beginning there. And when I was a kid, I always thought it was probably the most boring job in the world. And I always said, I do not want to do that. I don't want to sit in a cubicle all day. Um, so I was planning to be a prison psychologist, which is about the opposite job of being a programmer. And then after college, I was working in a, a neuropsych lab and hung out with a lot of people who were in grad school, decided I did not want to do that <laughs> and redid my website enough times to get a job at a local startup. Um, so that job was kind of like a small startup where we were working on a dashboard for um, marketers, uh, kind of like merging all of their data together and providing them a good way to know who was buying their products um, in a nice dashboard. And for a while, I was the only front end engineer. So I had to wear a lot of hats from, you know, doing basically backend development to all of the front end stack and then also doing the design and the data viz that comes along with that. So I really got a taste of like everything that has to do with making a dashboard. <laughs> um, and I've worked at companies like that for about eight years. And then um, for a short while last year, I was looking at the, the pudding, which is like a really great um, agency slash journalism a company where they make these really wonderful data-driven essays, um, just kind of like translating data into these wonderful storytelling articles on the web. And I worked on the agency side of that. And then in March, I moved over to GitHub. Um, I'm in a small team called GitHub Next, where it's kind of like an R&D team uh, focusing on what could the future of development look like and what are some crazy things we can explore that maybe the the main engineering team wouldn't have the time to go explore it's really cool um there i feel like there's so many things to latch on to there one really quick uh context question i want to ask is like uh did you join github after the microsoft acquisition yes 
Yes, yeah. I have nothing okay. to do with that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. That's all like to one to think of it that that's like how it works now. Um, and yeah, that there is a sort of a cultural shift that's ongoing at the company as well. And yeah, cool stuff. Um, okay, so the the episode title, and we always strain to make superhero connections because of the title of our show, but uh, I think this one's okay, uh, is X-ray vision, referring to, you know, Superman and the ability to see through things, etc. Um, and I guess my link there is that it's such a superpower to be able to take data or any complex mess of a topic as like you say with the putting these articles that they do visual explanations for and to turn that into like a story or, or something that can give you or that can show a depth of insight um I, I i do feel like there is magic inherent in that or a superpower inherent there um and what's interesting is you seem to have kind of gone into that from the start of your career even you know dashboards is that it's taking a bunch of stuff and and making it digestible um what draws you to that yeah yeah i really like the way you put that um i think what originally drew me to it is it was my background so it was just like a good link to um have through working in a a a lab and then moving towards software development um but i think what i actually like the most is i'm also I also like to do generative art where you're kind of working with a computer to make an art piece and like you have some control, but then um, you're also surprised at the output. And I think that's part of what I really like about doing data visualization where um, you can sketch all you want before actually visualizing the data set. And then you visualize it and you're like, this is not what I expected at all. Um, So even as you're working, you're learning about the data and, uh, I think it just gives you these different views that wouldn't be visible if say you were just looking at data in a table. Um, Even if it's a small data set, you kind of like get these different understandings of um, how it looks from different angles. And it's just really cool to be able to build something that you don't know how it's going to look at the end and kind of like do the iterations along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. I mean, uh, Scott will remember for a while at the company we worked at, uh, who's our sponsor. Um, previously I had been in my kind of internal spare time working on a, a dashboard for the employees. Um, had a lot of our colleagues there kind of in their off hours come and help out as well. So it was a nice team effort, but it was, we had all these stuff, these things in Jira, but we didn't like Jira was built for a very specific visualization of that. Yes, you have the gadgets and stuff, but it just felt like there was so much more information that were in context that we're missing there. And it, at the end of the day, is it, there's an API. It, it, there it is in data form. Let's manipulate that and turn it into something beautiful, which then in turn helps with comprehension. Um, yeah, it was fun. It was a really uh, cool thing to work on. And yeah, I, I think I feel the same sort of draw that you do. Oh, I do remember. Yeah. I do remember your project, Helen. I, I do remember it, and it was like super helpful. And the thing, the thing for me about all of this is that um, that in general, people without even knowing it love data. Like there's something like, there is something fascinating about it, and I think that um, like anything that you can do to really like use the data to paint the picture to make it more palatable to to people, um, everyone's interested in it. I think there's something like whether they know it or not, like everybody is interested in like in that kinds of facts and figures and, and, and the real superpower, like to go back to the to the references, like actually seeing through that data set and seeing something like clearer. Um it really like it really does make sense. Uh, I mean I can think of a recently I was talking to somebody who was wearing uh, a, a ring, like a really like really chunky ring. Uh, and he explained that it was actually monitoring his health um, like uh, and like the data was going like and then I realized that a few other people were wearing them as well and they were um, and they were they, they said the thing that was fascinating them was like the readings the, the the data that they were actually getting it from getting from it even down to them down to the data telling them whether they'd been sleeping well enough or whether they'd got enough so and it was all just being collected from the ring and 
what else did they tell? They told me actually that during the pandemic, they were um, they were regularly filling information in um, because the company that was collecting the data were trying to work out if um, if they could work out from sleep patterns whether somebody had got COVID, um, so that there could be like some kind of early detection sign. I was like, man, this is like that's just incredible. Like to paint those pictures is just like amazing. Like so, the things that you can do with it, and the like, um, everybody in some way is interested in this. This is funny because I actually just a few days ago got my husband that ring for his birthday. <laughs> and really? Yeah, there's some crazy stories for it where, um, like, if you're a woman, it can detect uh, sub degree changes in your base temperature rate and tell you like. Um, like when your peak fertility is. So there's a lot of people using it for like uh, fertility oh. tracking. Um, so like it, it's like that precise about your your temperature that uh, it gets things that even uh, like uh, sublingual thermometers won't get, which is crazy, right? And it's yeah, yeah. It, I think you're right where it's not the data that's interesting. Um, it's what we can get from the data. It's right. like... Um, I bought a 3D printer and then I was like, I have a 3D printer now. I'm going to use it all the time. And then it's like, what am I, what am I going to make? I was like, I don't really know. I can only make like silly things. But um, I, the magic really comes from when you can think of something really useful from it. Like I made one of those um, toothpaste ring. It like rings the toothpaste out of the thing which like it, it's like one of the most useful things i've gotten out of the 3d printer so like i think with like with data it's what can you do with it not like and it's like inherently cool by itself but also like you get it and then you're like is this useless <laughs> <laughs> it's often useless no one thing though that i i love about it and it feeds into the generative part as well is these kind of like happy accidents and these discoveries that propel other people forward so it's this idea of mm -hmm. and, and i'd like you to talk if you're able a bit about the the repository visualization you worked on recently because that seems like something that it's interesting and it can give you insights that you might not have gotten before but maybe there's another layer that someone can build on top of that that is even more interesting or useful. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So for the listeners' context, could you could you sort of walk us uh, through what I mean there? <laughs> Definitely. It's um. Let's see. How do we explain it? So this was kind of like something I've been wanting to explore for a while. Um. So we were in between big projects. So I was like, well, I have like a week or two. Let's just dive into it. Maybe um. Maybe we'll find something interesting. And the motivation is we always look at code bases through like a directory of folders and files. And it's just like, you know, uh, just a list where you can expand folders and then look at files. And like maybe sometimes there are metrics, like how big different files are and you get a number and you can kind of compare them. But um, I, um, I added a little thing to the write-up where um, it, it was... Um, I forget which repo, but it was some code base and the the prompt was dig through this code base to find tests for a specific um, functionality. Right. And it, you kind of have to like dig through and like you click into folders and then you're like, oh, it's not here. And then you have to go back outside the folders and then you dig through another folder. And um, the I kind of likened it to like walking through a maze when you're just like, walking through, you walk through, oh, you found a dead end. Now you have to retrace your steps and go down another path. Whereas I was trying to figure out, is there a way to visualize this data? And there's so much data with files and folders um, so that you can get like kind of a bird's eye view of what the code base looks like. And you're not kind of like on in the maze, like trying to figure your way around. Um, so it ended up being a circle pack diagram um, a little bit tweaked um, where each file is represented as a circle. Um, its size uh, was represented by how large the circle was. So the file size, uh, larger files had bigger circles and then its type. So I got the type from different extensions. So like CSS files are, I don't know, light blue and JavaScript files are green. 
Um, and then you have these nested within their folders within bigger circles. So it's definitely worth a look if you're unfamiliar with the circle pack diagram is um, um, because it's hard to explain on a podcast, but it, it's basically a bunch of colorful circles within bigger circles. Um, but it, it, it was also interesting looking at, like you kind of get a, a fingerprint for different repos. So if you look at a smaller repo, you can see there are a few circles. You can see like, oh, this is mostly JavaScript because it's mostly that green color. Hey, look, there's some readme's, maybe one in each folder. And then you look at a different repo and it's purple and you're like, oh, this is mostly Python code. And you can see how deeply nested the different folders are. And I think on its surface, it sounds nice. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, they see it and they're like, okay, cool, I guess. Um, but I think the more I dug into it, the more interesting it became because it's not inherently useful, but if you have a visual representation of a code base, you can use it for anything that you use like the, the directory structure for. Like you can show, um, like in a PR, like how is the structure of the code base changing? You can see in a single commit, like which files have been edited. Um, you can see like uh, connections in between files. That was another thing I, I played with, which is like lines going into a file if it's importing from another file. Um, you can also change the color scale to show which files are edited the most or which files were most recently edited. And I, I think I think it's really easy to dismiss, but um, I keep coming back to it as like, yeah. when I think about code bases, if we had the spatial visual representation, we could just understand them a little bit more. So it's really only useful in the next level applications. So, um, <laughs> so many things came to mind and I'm gonna leave some Sorry. of them off. And, you know, <laughs> no, no, it's great. Um, I love it. So, but in, in most immediate code base case, we, we had previously a guest on the show from a company called Narwhal. And they make um, a thing called NX uh, DevTools, which is a mono repo tooling. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that basically is in a mono repo, you have control and understanding of what all of your project's dependencies are. Mm -hmm. As much as possible, you're trying to go for a single package JSON in the root. And you have libraries, yes, you have applications, but because it's all sharing the same root setup, it's all in the same build process. And so you know where everything is. So you know if a particular application, what libraries it depends on, what they depend on as well. And you can draw out a dependency graph. And one of their selling points, although it's you know open source software, but one of their key kind of takeaways is this dependency graph is great. You visualize your dependencies in this sort of like tree format, um, but it doesn't take into account all the individual files, right? It's meant for apps and libs and such. But I'm guessing there could be work done here to take this concept and run with it in that regard as well. And then you really can see, like they highlight in their graph what's changed, what's affected in the current merge request branch, whatever, versus what was there before. So you don't have to run tests if nothing's changed. Well, this would also be a little nicer looking. And that that is not a point I think like, hmm. I'm getting a little off the rails. Sorry. I think people disregard how important things looking nice and being aesthetically pleasing are when it comes to code, because we're so in the sort of, does the computer understand it? Does it work? But when you're trying to get a human to understand what's going on, we really do have subconscious bias towards things that look nice to us, you know, these aesthetics. And mm -hmm. um, so I think this also helps building on top of all of these things and getting more information across. Yeah, that's a great point where um, we kind of like we had computers, we made computers and we mm, developers kind of like adapted to what makes the most sense for computers. Like, hey, it's really easy on the terminal to list out um, the files and folders in this kind of like text format. But I feel like we haven't evolved very far beyond us learning how to speak computers <laughs> where like, can we push that out a little bit further because our computers are now way more power powerful than our brains are, especially at this kind of thing. So can we make the computers work a little bit harder to make our lives easier? 
I guess as well. Yeah. I guess as well, though, the the thing about taking something and making it um, more uh, more human or at least more um, appealing to humans goes back to the very beginning bit of your um, your introduction where you said that your parents were programmers and you thought it was boring and you didn't want to do that. And so, like, it kind of goes back to, like, um, the reason I, – I don't know, like, the exact reasons why you assumed that that was boring, but it kind of, like, alludes to, well, it's computers. And so, like, um, the whole making things more appealing and making things easier, like, easy to understand and easy, more easily accessible probably probably actually ties in like a little bit with that um it isn't i mean i still think it's a common common thought that oh like coding must be boring um like that kind of thing uh, i'll take it another step because i don't think we've gotten there yet which is it's not just visualized it's interactive as well mm-hmm. so one of the reasons like when shirley brought you up as her suggestion for true hero back in the earlier part of this season i already knew who you were because your article uh what does 100 percent mean in css Hmm. had floated by me at one stage and it's this idea of in that you know it's an article for sure but you added all these enhancements to give people toggle switches and sliders to let them see exactly what's going on. Um, Sarah Soyden did the same thing with uh, the SVG view box. Um, and, and so visualizing it, yes, but also making it interactive and adding sort of a time or, you know, tinkering element to it to help understand. And it clicked for me like that. I'd been working with it for years. I kind of understood it, but actually being able to play around with it and find all these weird edge cases without explanations even i learned it better because of that and i and i i think that is a very key part of all the stuff we're doing yeah i love that um thanks for bringing that up i um i feel like we this is uh when i was at the pudding this probably made more sense but i feel like we had newspapers and now we have articles online and we just took the newspapers and we put them on a website and now we're like yeah this is like peak communication just read these words um, and this is how we communicate. Whereas I feel like the technology, especially in a web browser has kind of exploded. And I don't think there's enough exploration of like, how do we um, make it easier to communicate information with uh, like this new technology. And I I also think that uh, like, I think back to when I was a kid and like, how did I learn anything? I kind of just like mucked around and like saw what happened and then changed something. And like, this is how you learn like the rules of physics and like um, how to make things with Play-Doh is like, you kind of just try something and you get this instant feedback loop and then you uh, like learn really quickly and it, it responds to what you do. And I think there's a, like a, Maybe we can interpret that into the ways we either communicate specific things or I'm also trying to put together kind of like a playground that looks like any design tool like Illustrator or Figma, but it also has the code on the right hand side. So as you drag things around, you can see how that's represented in the SVG code, Um, because I think it's really hard to learn SVG at the moment because we learn it both in the visual format and like we mess around with it. And then like we learn we can port this to the web and it's really just code, but there's no link between like when I move this, what changes in the code to like kind of put those together and give you that really fast feedback feedback loop. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a cool project. I've seen you posting some little screenshots and videos of that as well. And it's super useful. I mean, like I was trying to, I remember trying to figure out if I could programmatically draw these lines in in CSS. And it was so backwards, right? Because mm-hmm. zero wasn't where I thought it was. And then I had to like, mm-hmm. anyway, it just, it was really hard. It, it eventually did make sense of drawing these points, et cetera. But then I had to go down to the bottom because it needed to be a filled in line chart thing. Uh, it was yeah. a lot. So it would have helped to have it's something. It's not clear. Yeah, it's not clear. Yeah. Um, we, we, we talked a bit with someone on the show, I think, about uh, SVG as well as the Bizarro Dom, um, uh, Cassie Evans. 
and because it's just it's the dom but it's not quite the dom <laughs> yeah it um, is like you can use some css properties but not all of them and like you can also use yeah. them as html attributes sometimes but not always <laughs> It's one strange. of those one of those things that you think you should naturally understand. Like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for a while. Yeah, yeah I'll understand this. I oh, know I don't understand anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like close enough that you you have this false sense of security where like, yeah. oh yeah, this is working, and then like it stops working immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm I'm a very good swimmer. I've been swimming since my mom at least tells me I was like eight months old or something crazy. Um, like before I could walk, I was swimming, but that gives me a false sense of confidence when it comes to being on a boat, right? Like I can drive a boat. Sure. I don't think I can actually drive a boat. I haven't tried, you know, uh, even a just like boat. swimming. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, it's water. Yeah. No, it's not the same. <laughs> um, one other kind of, it, this is maybe a little off topic, although I think we touched on it is so you have a job where you get to kind of tinker and experiment. And I think a lot of us do like I've been spending this last like four days experimenting with testing, which is to say trying to switch from karma to jest and it's breaking and I don't know why, but then I change something and I see if it works. It's a very frustrating version of that, but I think we do that a lot. But um, how do you distinguish of what to actually spend your time on between something practical that you have an end result and you know that this is going to work versus maybe like the birdsong visualization that I, I saw come up uh, recently mm. as well, you know, um, where, hey, it turned out pretty cool, but maybe it wouldn't have, right? Like, how do you decide what to focus yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, no, that's really tough. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. I'm both I'm new to this job and the team is new. So um, there's three or four of us and we all have just started building up the team and building up our practices. So it's definitely something we're still figuring out. Um, but I, I think it's just when I first joined, um, the metric that I heard was 10% of projects should succeed and whatever success means for like R and D. Um, but I think the goal is to give ourselves space to explore ideas that might seem really crazy on the outset um, and then being okay with those failing, um, which has is definitely a little bit difficult coming from like I worked on an, a real product for, you know, eight years and success when working on a product is shipping features um, and getting those things done as quickly as possible. So it's a very hard transition, I think, to switch to um, am I actually being productive? Like I spent the entire day building out this prototype and we're probably not going to use it for anything. Like, was that a worthwhile investigation or did I just, you know, like waste my company's time? Um, where like, I, I think the trick is to be okay with wasting time because, um, like even when I do side projects like this SVG thing or the bird song thing, there's always a way to use that at my real job, whether like I learned some new trick or like there's, you know, some way I'm bringing that into um, something that actually gets translated into, you know, hard money dollars where it, it is really hard, I think is what I'm trying to say. But I think, I think you have to just be okay with that. <laughs> I think that's the trick. I'm not sure yet though. I, I, I can't, I, yeah. go on, sorry, Evan. No, no. I was kind of gonna. I was gonna say. I, I kind of think that that's um, really um, the way that a product would develop. I know that this. I know for for sure you have clients and everything, and you know you have to ship features. But I think that any successful product team would um, probably not be afraid to fail, and they would probably like take a lot of that into their work with them. Um, and take out lessons like it may not, you know, um, it, your, your time may have been spent like learning a new skill, uh, which um, but the, at the time, the feature that you were working on just didn't go or it didn't go quite as well. I think the, the main thing in our industry, I think, is that um, is not being afraid to fail. It is being um, it is really putting effort into things which like they, they might not work like and. Isn't that where um, 
like real like innovation and leaps like forward like actually happen when people are actually working in an environment where it's it's fine for that to happen like the you know you you're given space for creativity um like to me yeah. that's the, the the best way of moving things forward I, I um i lived in rochester in upstate new york for a while and um it used to be a really big tech hub it, it had intel and xerox um and i think at least oh and kodak i don't know about intel but i think either or both of those companies are kind of examples of you need to iterate um in order to get out of local maxima and move on to the next thing because if you have a successful product and you're like all right this is great and you're not iterating and trying to find that next thing then um, there are other companies who will eventually you know find that next thing and potentially take all of your customers away from you yeah yeah i i, I think to 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 continue on with that as well of of you have to be okay with you know pushing the boundaries until you fail you also need to be clear that that's what you're doing i think a lot of people well what is that there's the uh paletto principle something like that i think i might be saying it wrong but there's this principle at play that says that you know in any given system um 80% or 70% of the people in, or the 30% of the people involved do 80, 70% of the effort or whatever it might be. It's this idea that there's, there's a lot of people that are just there to kind of put in the baseline. And we talked about that many times because I think it always depends. In life, there are going to be things that you should be comfortable only putting in the baseline for. And that is not something that you should be down on it. But if you're one of those people in your career, in your like in the front end, that are overachievers that want to be kind of pushing the envelope, it can be frustrating to be surrounded by those other people. Um, but again, if you weren't clear on this idea that we're going to try some stuff and we might not succeed and that's okay because we're growing and learning, then people can just kind of goof off and not have any learning coming from the failures. You have to be on the ball about that. That's, that's all I would say. Um, I'm trying not to be mean about it and I'm trying not to bring my own bias into it. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. But um, yeah, like it just helps to talk about it so that you know what you need to take away from the failure as well. Yeah. And I, I think it, there's a lot to be said for, knowing what you need out of work um, and then optimizing for that. Like, I know that I need to be pushed and feel a little bit stressed out in order to be satisfied with um, that I'm learning all the time. And um, there's like a specific balance for me. Like I can't be failing all the time because then I'll lose motivation for doing the work. Um, but I do want those challenges, you know, at s some regular interval. Um, and I think that's going to be totally different for someone else who like, maybe it's really satisfying for them to really ship things on a regular cadence or, um, you know, like bigger companies are better for, um, that kind of person who likes the, like, um, I know that I'm iterating on something that's really useful. Um, so I, I, I think like I always say that I really am happy that I started at a really small startup where I could try a lot of different things and kind of learn what works for me and what doesn't, um, because there's definitely not one thing that works for everyone. And that's awesome because then there are people who enjoy the jobs that I wouldn't enjoy so much. And I enjoy things that they don't enjoy. Very true. Um, potentially a good link here is the question of, um, specifically within the development field, mentorship and I don't mean to bring this into your current company unnecessarily, but I'm curious. We have a, a colleague, um, Scott and I both have known for quite a while now, who is pushing to get some sort of mentorship thing going at his current company. Um, and it's this idea of what does that actually look like? What's the best model for this? Do you enforce it on a manager level that the manager is responsible for sort of shepherding their people along? Or is it more of a peer-to-peer, -peer, like I'm just a little bit ahead in this area, so I will give you advice here? Um, 
have you participated in that in the course of your career of being having someone or being that to someone? Uh, and what what what's your take on that? Yeah, um, I'd love to hear more about the program you're pushing forward. I I, um, I personally don't have a ton of experience. I think this is the sad part about working for bigger companies where um, the point, I guess, of your job is that you're not redundant. <laughs> and by, by redundant, I just mean like there aren't that many people who also focus on the same thing. Um, so uh, every now and then I'll get someone where like our Venn diagrams overlap and, you know, we'll be like, oh, like learning from each other. Like, oh, I didn't know you could do that this way. Um, and just learning from them as like looking at their career over time and figuring out what has worked for them. Um, the I think the pl I'm definitely getting that at GitHub because it's a much bigger company and there's like tons of smart coworkers who are at different stages in their career. Um, but in the past, I've never had any like formal mentor or mentee relationships. Yeah, for for me, uh, for me, I think that um, something like that should be natural. It should naturally occur. I don't personally think that it should be something that's like mandated. Um, like, I think I, I think back to our like starting uh, working life in Spain, Avan, and like. We've both mentioned him many, many times, like um, Eric Grecian, um, mm -hmm. turned into like a mentor for both of us. Um, and that was not like a formal thing. It just kind of, for me, definitely anyway, for me, it just like kind of happened. I was working with him and then like he really like helped me. Um, and there was a personality wise, there was a natural fit. Um, and so like, I recognized that he had knowledge that I didn't and we got along and that happened. There's been many times where um, I think this, I've worked with people who needed guidance and maybe I was not the person to give it to them. Um, I could have done like technically, but I don't think that there was necessarily a connection. Um, and so I'd kind of shy away from that because um, I could help them if they really needed it. But I, I think they needed something else from from uh, personality-wise. Yeah, I, I, I can expound upon that briefly because uh, Eric actually was officially like my mentor, Will, and we call him ah, Advocate. Okay. And I think it's not like, like the personality connection is super important. It's, it's, you can still do it if you don't get along because when you have these um in place within the company, these kind of programs, it's usually like, Hey, every few months, here's some questions you should be asking, follow up on these topics, set some smart goals as they're, they're called. And you have a framework to exist within, even if you don't get along, but when you don't, when there's no real connection there, it's not as good as when there is, I'll say it that way. But I wonder too, if the framework didn't exist, would, uh, would that relationship have formed, you know, Scott and I in this this company we're talking about where we worked and, and and met Eric, it's a consultancy. So very like large and a lot of people doing very similar work in that regard. But there's also people we worked with and knew who we'd never worked with, if that makes sense. We never were on the same team. Um, one of our like one of my closest friends from that company, Natalia, we never coded anything together. This, you know, the five years that we were uh, on the, in the same company, shaping the future of the company as well. It's just a strange thing. So, like, I have a bunch of proteges that I'm super grateful that this was there for, because I, even when I was tired, I still had to show up and do this for them, if that makes sense. And that happens too in life. You have the best intentions and then you get busy or the other person's busy or you're tired or someone's in a bad mood and you mean to do it, but then you don't. And then that connection is lost. So the framework again provides that sort of, yeah, scaffolding structure, whatever, to keep it going. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan only because I've seen it pay off so well for some people. You know what I mean? Anyway. That is really interesting that, um, 
I mean, we have both sides of the case study here, right? Like you had a formal relationship and Scott, you didn't, um, but you still got something out of it, but maybe it wouldn't have existed if you didn't have that um, like formal relationship. Um, and I think there is a lot to be said for like when I was learning web development, it was just kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall. How do I build this? Let's do a million Google searches and then figure things out and um I think at the beginning, my mental model of how code worked and like, like I learned a bunch of things at once. So like, I didn't even know what was, you know, um, maybe this is an exaggeration, but like what's JavaScript, what's HTML, like what's ES6, what's, what am I getting from like Webpack? And like, there's all these things that are kind of, were kind of a jumble and took a while to figure out. Whereas if I had had someone to go to, um, to be like, how do I do this? And they point you in the right direction. That's, I think, invaluable. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. having those mentor yeah. programs are really nice. One of the things is I, I do think it has to be combined with some feedback, because if you are going to talk about career, you need it. Self-reflection isn't always enough. Like you have plenty of blind spots. I have plenty of blind spots, right? But if I know not just what I'm working on and what I think my strengths are, but I can give, get my team to give me some idea of, hey, this was good. I love that you accomplished this. You kind of dropped the ball on that sort of like merge thing the other day, it's, you know, whatever it might be, like constructive feedback and stuff. And then you can use that with your mentor to say like, well, how would I improve that? Which is also hard to do when you're by yourself <laughs> and you're a specialist, right? I, I'm, I've hit that now as well. It's not that my company doesn't have other uh, Angular experts, but I'm very, like, I, I'm super specialized in it right now to the point where I have to go and talk to random people on Twitter to get the kind mm -hmm. of feedback I need. <laughs> it's great. It's yeah. a good position to be in. But yeah, um, mentorship doesn't always have to be about the immediate speciality either, right? Where it's a tech career thing, I guess, is where I'm going with it. Yeah, I guess everybody needs some guidance sometimes. It doesn't hurt, does it? Like, you know, everybody needs like a sounding board. Um, yeah. So, yeah, why not? I mean, like if it's formalized or not, I still would urge people to um, to at least find somebody that they can talk to and they can connect with and, and trust and um, build that rapport up. And because like for sure, like in all of this, everybody's going to need some help at some point. Everybody's going to need that. Like, so um, if you can actually... Like build up that relationship and uh, but that's what I mean though for for me it's less important to have something like formal and it's more important to find um, the people who you can help and connect with and uh, and have confidence that they're going to give you the feedback that you need and um, like but the randomness of that um, is like especially during the randomness of that especially when people are no longer really going to offices that much um, like becomes much more complicated. I mean, how are you going to find somebody for sure like that when 90% um, of the time you don't meet the people? It's just uh, a chat on Zoom or something like that. Like then it then the challenge becomes much much heavier. So difficult difficult thing to sort out. Yeah, I, I, I um. I think also the hard part these days is, and the, and the reason for formal programs is like, it's kind of a pyramid, right? Of like, who has certain skills and how skilled are they at these things? Um, and I get a few people through my course who I'll help them through certain problems. But I think if you're just learning something, the people who are very skilled and very visible get, you know, like 10 requests a day. And as much as they want to help people out, they can't help everyone. Um, so I, I wonder if there's also something like there's also communities where like people can learn together and um, like, so the only onus isn't on these people who have those skills, but like um, having cohorts to learn with and um, um, just like some way of spreading out like the learning, the teaching burden or like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I feel like there's some room for visualization of those as well, because I've joined plenty of little Discord groups recently. Then they have like 20 channels of like, hey, here's this subtopic within this front end world or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. 
but it's still super random and you don't know who's in the channel and you don't know expertise. Um, and we're getting closer to the end. So maybe this will be like our way to link it back around to the start. Uh, another thing from our company uh, that we worked at before is the governance model was holacracy, which is governance by circle. So it is literally very visual. The way that like the software that powers it works is it's a visualization of nested circles. So the whole company is within the one circle. And as you pick up domains over a certain area of whatever responsibility it is, you create a circle and there are meetings that are held for that and so on. I won't go into the details. It's an interesting huh. way to run a company. But the visualization part in particular shows you really quickly like, okay, well, I'm in the company. I want to look at the development process. So there's a circle for that that has been created alongside things like sales or whatever. And then inside there, there's the front-end development process. And inside there is a few different things like the pathway itself of like, what does it mean to be a front-ender? There's like, you know, tooling choices and build tools and so on. And then who inside there is the responsible person I should talk to. And you could really quickly, if you were reading and drill and had a vague familiarity with it, drill down to find exactly who is the right person to ask about a topic. Um, I love that sort of thing. And I, and I, I think that that could be applied not just to running a company, but other sort of online communities too. That's really cool. I was um, this morning looking at video game UIs as inspiration for something I'm like trying to think through and like, why did they have such great interfaces for something that like, ultimately, you're at a higher level in this video game, whereas like, there's real world companies of like, um, you know, like getting better at your career, which like might be more valuable than getting better at a video game where like, why do we have better visualization for one of these and basically nothing for the other? So it's cool that to hear that your company is doing something like that. Yeah. Well, X company, like we've both moved on since and, uh, I'm, they're our sponsor again. Uh, we still think they're the best. So like <laughs> no, no love lost there. <laughs> Great. Um, so I'm going to cut us a little bit short there. Um, so we need to move into our uh, kind of getting towards the end. But first, we have our segment, True Hero. In this segment, we like to highlight a few of the true front-end heroes that work across the planet and to thank them for all that they do. So this time around, um, you've chosen to nominate Steve Ruiz. Um, can you tell us a bit more uh, about them and you know um, why you're nominating them for True Hero? Yeah. Um... Steve Ruiz, I don't know. I follow him on Twitter. I don't actually know a ton about him, but he's been posting um, basically updates for his journey of building a vector design tool. And I think this mode of uh, like iterating in public is really awesome. Being able to follow his journey and see all the different like little UI bits that you have to think through while making a product like this that I would never otherwise have thought about. Um, I think he's definitely worth checking out and I would love also love him to be on this show because I don't know a lot about him, but I think it'd be awesome to learn a little bit more. Cool. Thanks. So again, Steve, thank you for all that you do. Keep it up. Um, we'll post your uh, info in the show notes for, for sure. Uh, lastly here, any proper hero is a well-rounded one. And so we want to share some simple musical picks. Uh, Scott, what's the favorite thing you've been listening to lately? Um, I've actually been listening to, and like, again, like showing that I'm probably stuck in bands of like the 2000s, but um, believe it or not, the Killers are still producing music. Um, and I listened to um, their new album. It's called Pressure Machine. Um, I really liked it. It's kind of... Um, but it's like, um, like I think eleven or twelve tracks, like really like stories, um, and I think basically stories from like all across America, um, which probably would resonate more with uh, other people than me. But I'm, a, I'm like a huge fan of storytelling music, um, and it's you know it's kind of interesting to listen to a band like that, which was so like you know were like Mr. Brightside. Um, and some and like come around to this point um, and make an album like like this where 
Um, it's not heavy by any means, but it's like really like different from where they started off. And um, strange things happened as well. Like Brandon Flowers looks old. Like he actually like he got older. Like I swear the man was never like aging at all. Um, and then suddenly like like twenty years have passed, and like it's really strange to see on the promo stuff. Um, oh, but anyway, I've been I've been listening to that and I've really liked it. Yeah, really cool. Uh, thanks, Amelia. How about you? Um. So this isn't typically the music I listen to, but there's one album that comes to the top of my brain when prompted for what is one of my favorite albums, and that is Paul Simon's Graceland. Um, I listen to it basically every road trip I go on, and it's nice. just the most listenable, um, almost too catchy, so it gets stuck in your head for multiple days, but I, I will never get tired of it. Nice. Yeah, it's great to have those kind of albums that you can just go back to and be like, yep, this is familiar, so comfortable this time. Yeah, there's, yeah. I have a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. um, one of them being like Weezer's Blue Album. I don't always love mm-hmm. Weezer's music, but the Blue Album is like, I can remember the book I was reading while I was listening to it and the place that we were in at the time because we were on vacation or something. Like it's all just so bound together. Yeah. Nice. I've, I've heard that, um, I want to hear yours, but I w- I've heard that if you listen to a specific album or a playlist on vacation and then like don't listen to that music again, whenever you play that playlist, you can like bring back the memories of yeah. the vacation, which I've always wanted to do. I think that is 100% true in my Yeah, that's, my got, that's got to happen. It's got to happen. Yeah. Like a song takes you straight back to like a certain situation, yeah. right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so so mine is maybe in the other camp of I don't actually know the music very well at all yet, but it's still very nostalgic, and it is the Cuphead soundtrack. So if you're not familiar, there's a game called Cuphead. It's a few years old now, and it looks like those old Disney Warner Brothers cartoons when they still did matte painting backgrounds and all of that. Very kind of like early animation days style already. But the music is also like 30s kind of big band, jazz, Cab Calloway, like all of the, I love it so much. Uh, Django Reinhardt, like it gives you all of these impressions and there's so much of it too. The, the soundtrack itself is two discs, but like it, every song is three, four minutes long of really interesting, pretty much like well-arranged, played by a real big band and orchestra and stuff. Um I guess the composer is this guy, Christopher Madigan. Um, but yeah, I love it. Three hours of music, almost. It's super good. So Nice. Good. So it looks like that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you should like Heart of Star Us in your podcatcher of choice. Reviews and ratings are how the fancy algorithms help people find our content, and the power to help is within you. If you have any questions or topics you want covered in our next episode, please send us a tweet at, at heroesfrontend, and we'll add it to our list. And in next, until next time, heroes, remember, with great front-end power comes great responsibility. See you next time.